It is my pleasure to welcome Phyllis Rabinowitz, the founder of Our Baby Foundation, to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast studio. Our Baby Foundation is dedicated to saving babies' lives with a focus on the care of infants in pediatric emergency rooms. On prior podcasts, I have shared a few of the initiatives that Phyllis and her staff at Our Baby Foundation have implemented, and now we're happy to have Phyllis in the studio. Phyllis, welcome to the Chop Pem Podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for supporting Our Baby Foundation. You are welcome. Phyllis, you started Our Baby Foundation more than 15 years ago. Give us the story behind Our Baby. Sure. So actually almost 17 years ago, my daughter, Rebecca Ava, was born and, um, you know, she was born healthy. She was uh, in the NICU, but she was released. And when we brought her home, unfortunately, we had seen a lot of alarming symptoms, which, you know, I have an older son, so I'm not really an alarmist. Uh, So we rushed her to the ER explaining the symptoms of you know, lethargy. She wasn't feeding. She was sounded like an 80 year old man with asthma. She was, you know, sounded like she was wheezing, difficulty breathing. And, you know, they kind of dismissed it saying it's probably a common cold. And, uh, you know, we wanted to believe them because, you know, they're the doctors and they're the experts. And, um, so we brought her home and unfortunately, you know, she went into sepsis shock the next day and she passed away. So the reason I share the the specifics in the story is because we later found out that she had contracted an enteroviral infection, which older children can actually fight off easier than babies who don't have an immune system. So I think that that's a really important nugget of information because, um, you know, we quickly learned that, you know, many ERs have different levels of preparedness and, you know, the the training and, and the level of expertise on infants versus older children versus adults uh, varies. And we didn't know that. And, um, you know, similar to COVID, actually, which I know this episode's about, you know, I think it did affect babies and children differently than adults. And I think, um, you know, I applaud all the pediatric physicians out there, because uh, it really is a different field of medicine. And um, when we learned later about her enteroviral infection, we learned that you know, she didn't have a fever. So that's why they didn't readmit her. And, you know, that was like shocking to me because, you know, another hospital we spoke to when we started our baby said we would have readmitted a baby with a common cold because, you know, even common colds are hard to fight off. But the hospital we went to had different protocols. So just learning that there was varying degrees of training as far as diagnosis and varying degrees of protocols of when to readmit a baby, when not to was really uh, surprising to us. So that's really why we started Our Baby Foundation was to make sure the pediatric expertise is everywhere in every ER and every child gets the best possible emergency health care. And I know you started by saying, you know, we focus on infants, which we did originally, but maybe I need to update my website better because we actually, uh, a lot of our programs that, you know, we train, you know, doctors all over the country uh, from zero to you know 18 or 21. So we do try to impact the healthcare of all age children uh, at this point. Thank you, Phyllis. Again, you've turned that terrible tragedy that no parent wants to go through to a wonderful organization that has benefited thousands and thousands of infant and children's lives. And we, the pediatric emergency medicine and emergency medicine community, thank you for all that you've done over the last 15 plus years. 
Thank you so much. And I want to thank all the pediatric doctors for all that you do, because again, it is that separate field of medicine and, you know, sharing your knowledge and podcasts like this and our training and the virtual training that people do, I think can only benefit, you know, all the families out there. Great. And you can find more information about Our Baby Foundation on their website. It's the letter R, rbabyfoundation.org. Again, Phyllis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. And you can also sign our petition for uh, the pediatric emergency medical systems to be revamped uh, to make sure that every child, no matter what, from the 911 call to the ER to the post-ER visit is taken care of from a pediatric expertise perspective. So you can find our petition on our website too. Thank you. Excellent, Phyllis. Thank you again. I have been planning this episode of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast for a long time. Basically, in my head, I've been planning it. Why? Two reasons. Number one, an opportunity for us to bring back Dr. Paul Offit to the podcast for a record third time. He's always informative and entertaining, and I'm sure he will not disappoint. And secondly, and maybe a little bit more importantly, We have all read or watched so much information about COVID the last two to three years. And even today, many of us struggle to know what's right and what's wrong, what we should believe and what we should not believe. It's my pleasure to welcome back Dr. Paul Offit, CHOP physician and internationally recognized expert in infectious disease and vaccines, and also a best-selling author. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Bob. It's my pleasure. Paul, let's go back to 1931. Barry Wood, the quarterback of the Harvard football team, when actually Harvard football mattered, they were a top 20 team. He was also a Phi Beta Kappa student who became a prominent physician. He first coined the term Monday morning quarterback. The phrase refers to a person who questions the decisions and actions of other people after something has happened. Today on the Chop Pen Podcast, The something is COVID, and my conversation with you, Paul, will attempt to look back on this pandemic and state what went right and what went wrong. Paul, you've been interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of times since early 2020. I bet you have never been asked this question. You ready? Ready. Your favorite movie about the pandemic, and I'm going to give, it's multiple choice, Paul. Number one, 1995 Outbreak, starring Cuba Gooding, Morgan Freeman, and Rene Russo. 2007, I Am Legend, starring Will Smith. 2011, Contagion, starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Matt Damon. Or 2018, Bird Box, starring Sandra Bullock. Or I'll give you another choice, Paul, other. Your favorite pandemic movie. Um, I guess my favorite pandemic movie was Contagion. Um I like that. So, so it was, it was, uh, that's right. I mean, the the only thing I had problems with, with that movie was when Gwyneth Paltrow died, you know, and they, they had the, she's, she's now getting an autopsy. They removed the skull. They look at her brain and the pathologist just sort of steps back in heart. I'd like to think that the pathologist wouldn't have done that, you know, that he'd seen something like that before, but generally I liked that movie. I thought it was really well done. I'm pretty sure that Ian Lipkin, who's a virologist was the, um, advisor, the medical advisor for that movie. That's awesome. Thank you, Paul. All right, let's go from arts, Paul, to science. 
Uh, recently, the Select Subcommittee of the Coronavirus Pandemic held hearings. They presented strong evidence, Paul, of a potential lab leak as the origin of COVID. Whether it was accidental or not, we don't know. In March of this year, 2023, Scientific American Magazine talked about swabbing a cart at the food market in Wuhan, China. And this swab detected genetic material from raccoon dogs and also tested positive for COVID. Again, not saying that COVID came from the raccoon dog, but again, that's what was on the swab. So, Paul, let's start off with an easy question. Where did the COVID virus uh, originate from? It was an animal to human spillover event that occurred in the western section of the Huanan seafood wholesale market towards the end of 2019. This could not be clearer. This is not a scientific controversy. And it is depressing to me that people like Christopher Ray from the FBI gets up in front of Congress and says that this could be a lab leak, or that the Department of Energy says that, or that Marty Macri from, from the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Hopkins say that. This is not a, a, a medical or scientific controversy. The, the, here, here's why. The early cases all emanated from that area. Who is, is China had actually very late in 2019 obtained swabs, not only from the animals that were in that particular area, but also from like the cages, from the, the uh, feather and hair removal mover uh, um, items, from the, uh, the instruments that had been used to sacrifice those animals. And in all cases, you could find evidence of SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, China sort of helped promote this lab leak theory in a sense by being so xenophobic and unwilling to really let other scientists come in and investigate that. And the only reason we know about that genetic evidence is that for uh, about a day, it leaked onto the internet before it was taken off quickly. And, and scientists like Michael Warby, who's an evolutionary biologist at Arizona, saw it and then quickly took a screenshot of it. And so now you know that that was true. And so, I mean, it is, it is remarkable to me that, that SARS-1, which was also an animal to human spillover event, likely in a, in a wet market, wet market meaning live animals all in one place. Place. Same thing with MERS, you know, the sort of second Sorbeco virus to cause a small pandemic. And then this, um, why is it that it, it happened to leak right in an area where you would expect an animal to human spillover event to occur? It's like a 10 million to one shot. So um, this is not a controversy among scientists. And the other thing people argue as well, you can't find evidence of SARS-CoV-2 spike protein in nature. Wrong that there have been mat bats that have been isolated where that's been found. And then there was a book written by Alina Chin and Matt Ridley uh, called Viral, uh, sort of like the search for the origin of SARS-CoV-2 and or COVID. And uh, they said, well, look at this so-called furin cleavage site. So furin's a protease, that fusion protein has to be cleaved before it can enter cells. And they said, but look at the insertional site of that furin cleavage site. It's not possible that that was created by nature. It had to be created by man. And now that cleavage site and the place that it is found has also been found in nature. So there's not if you're going to make an extraordinary claim, as Carl Sagan argues, it should be backed by extraordinary evidence. This is an extraordinary claim backed by no evidence. All the evidence is on the other side that this was an animal to human spillover event. Okay. And Paul, obviously you sound very firm on that. Question to you though, wasn't this virus being worked on in the lab adjacent 
to the marketplace. Right. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology is about nine miles north on the other side of the Yangtze River for where, where the Hunan uh, seafood market is. They were studying coronavirus, for sure, because there'd been a SARS-1 outbreak, there'd been a MERS outbreak. I mean, this is the kind that Wuhan is a big city in China. Um, there's a lot of commercial uh, travel through that city. If there was going to be a spillover event, that's a likely place for a spillover event to occur. So that Institute of Virology was created in large part to study these kind of spillover events, not to create them. And uh, what uh, uh, Xi Jen Li was working on was looking at, um, at uh, something called the WIV-1 virus, which is a coronavirus, and then sort of reassorting it with uh, bat viruses that had been found in nature. And she didn't in any sense have any gain of function, although you could argue those were gain of function studies, but no function was gained. But certainly SARS-CoV-2 wasn't created. Yet sort of true, true, unrelated. Yes, there was an institute of virology there. Yes, they were studying coronaviruses. No, they did not create that virus. Awesome. All right, Paul, you seem pretty uh, firm about that. Let's move on to uh, some other issues. Two thirds of the American public believe this was a lab leak, which tells you how bad we've been at being able to explain the science here. Well, I think most of the issues we're going to be discussing, I think it's split 50-50. So like you're right, two thirds uh, are au contraire uh, from that opinion. But uh, all right, let's go back to after 9-11, after the anthrax scares in this country. Uh, the U.S. since 9-11 has spent over $100 billion, with a B, billion dollars, post-9-11, post-anthrax, hoping to prevent future bioterrorism attacks. Paul, where did that funding go? Why were these defenses or the knowledge gained from spending billions of dollars against bioterrorism not more helpful in responding to the COVID pandemic? Right. No, good question. Even you could argue more specifically in 2005, when the H5N1 virus raised its head, the so-called bird flu virus as a potential pandemic virus, there was put in place by people like Dr. Tony Fauci and others, a pandemic virus preparedness plan, which seemed to have gotten torn up right before this pandemic raised its head. So it's sad. the sad truth is uh, public health is always at some level political because it's a matter of allocating resources, but it doesn't have to be partisan. And I think that's what happened here. I think this, this, uh, I think the, the Trump administration, which, which did a great thing in the creation of Operation Warp Speed and making the fastest vaccine ever made, um, didn't, uh, didn't act well in the sense of doing the kinds of things we could have done to prepare. I, I think that there was a lot of denialism by the, uh, federal government and just hoping it all would go away when that wasn't going to happen. Let's switch to mortality rates. Uh, Paul Johns Hopkins recently published in March of this year, uh, COVID mortality rates per capita in the United States, 341 per 100,000. That number much higher than other wealthy countries. France, 254 per 100,000. Germany, 203 per 100,000. Canada, 134. Japan, 57. Why were mortality rates highest in the United States? compared to these other countries? Uh, we did a lot of things wrong. I mean, we have roughly 4% of the, the world's population and about 20% of the deaths at more than 1.1 million deaths. Um, I think going back and hopefully we'll do a post-mortem, if you will, a Monday morning, morning quarterback on this, if you will, and we can, can figure out all the things that we did wrong. But certainly um, very early on, the CDC um, should not have been the sole group trying to create a test for this virus and because they had a problem. The, their negative control was positive. 
effective. They had to recall those uh, those tests. I think they should have have farmed that out to all the different commercial testing laboratories and had a competition. And the more the merrier. They did that didn't happen. I think the Defense Procurement Act, which is is a product of the executive branch, could have made it so that we had masks and gowns all in place early on instead of having, as we had even at our hospital, you know, nurses who would wear bandanas instead of face masks or garbage bags instead of uh, gowns. And similarly with ventilators. I mean, although we we now can question the importance of ventilators in this, but, you know, we were, the states were competing for ventilators. We did, we, we did not, you know, we have a lot of denialism in this country. In, in 2020, we didn't have anything. Right, we didn't have uh, monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have vaccines. We didn't have antivirals. That didn't come till the end of 2020. So for that first year, you had a virus which was highly lethal that was spread asymptomatically, and you all we had was to try and avoid each other's presence. So so we masked and social distanced and isolated and quarantined and shuttered schools and closed businesses and tried to inter- to decrease our interaction with our fellow humans. And, um, you know, we were overwhelmed by that. And I think we could have done a much better job of testing to figure out where the hotspots were and of convincing people of how bad this was. I mean, you had, you know, liberate Alabama, liberate Montana, you know, and, and, and a president at the time that was all for that, you know, let's, uh, because, because what we did inadvertently here in many ways for masking and vaccines, especially is we leaned into a libertarian left hook. And, and the minute we started to, um, to insist compel people to be vaccinated or compel people to mask, uh, that was created a major pushback in this country. And because we were a country founded on individual rights and freedoms, and somehow that means the freedom to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection, you know, we wanted freedom, but we didn't want to be protected. And I think that that, that it was the nature of us, or at least part of us, that caused that. Paul, uh, we're not going to get political here again. I don't know your political views. You don't know mine. We don't know our audiences. But I imagine they're split 50-50. But would this have happened with any administration? So you're talking about things that we weren't prepared for. Obviously, the president in power at the time of the you know, uh, of the uh, outbreak uh, was at fault. Could any president from either of the parties have been president? And you would be saying the same thing today, years after uh, the pandemic first initiated? Well, I would say both the, the Trump and Biden administrations have made mistakes on this, this pandemic. I, I think that... Um, I'm not sure what it mattered. I, I think that that um, the Trump administration was willing, in many ways, to um, support this freedom notion. So, so for example, when when President Trump got COVID, um, he made a big deal about how when he walked right before he walked into the uh, the White House, he pulled off his mask to show that he was going to be free. So, I, I'm glad I wasn't the person on the other side of that door. I mean, he was clearly had COVID. Um, on the other hand, Operation Warp Speed was one of the greatest scientific and medical advances in my lifetime. I mean, my lifetime includes the development of the polio vaccine. I mean, from the time of we isolated that virus and sequenced it in January of 2020, 11 months later, you had two large clinical trials showing that you had a safe and effective vaccine. And those trials were as big as any typical adult or pediatric vaccine trial. So um, I think that was amazing. And, and the Biden administration also figured out how to mass produce, mass distribute, mass administer a vaccine in a country that didn't have really an infrastructure for mass vaccinating adults. So that was amazing. But both groups have made uh, mistakes. I think I do think that it wouldn't have mattered. I, I think that that Trump appealed to this sort of libertarian notion of don't tell me what to do, government off my back. But I think that was, that notion was always there, uh, and, and we would have always had to have fight it, fought it. Great. We're, we're going to talk a little bit more about vaccines, Paul, obviously, but was the name Warp Speed a bad name for the actual rollout of the vaccines? 
Right. So um, that name was given uh, by Peter Marks, who's the head of CBER, the Centers for Biological Evaluation Research um, at the FDA, because he's a Star Trek fan. And I think warp speed means faster than the speed of light. Um, yeah, I, I mean, certainly there was concern about whether this vaccine was ma- being made too quickly and that, that worst case scenario, that safety guidelines were being skipped or ignored. But I think that would have happened anyway. <laughs> I think people still would have been worried that it was made so quickly. And um, and people didn't trust the Trump administration, and in large part for a good reason, because he had really pressured the FDA. Here, here, was, here was an administration that insisted that hydroxychloroquine be approved by the FDA. And so they twisted the arm of the FDA to basically authorize the use of a drug that not only didn't work to treat or prevent the disease, but was unsafe and that it could cause cardiac problems. Um, and so then people didn't trust the FDA. And I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, we're the ones who recommend or don't recommend um, authorizing these, these vaccines. And so what happened was when that happened, you had 10 states that said, we don't trust the FDA. We're going to have our own vaccine advisory committees. Imagine that, that you have some states that recommend the vaccine, other states that didn't. We were heading there. And, and to, the, to the credit of the FDA, and specifically Stephen Hahn, who was the commissioner, um, when it was clear that if we were going to have a two-month safety follow-up from the last dose, which is a typical safety follow-up, that was going to take us till December, which was a month after the election. And, you know, Donald Trump pulled, um, or President Trump pulled Stephen Hahn into his office and in an invective-laden tirade said to him, I want this vaccine approved before the election. And he stood tough, did Stephen Hahn. And so um, there, there, was, there clearly was a politicization of that. But we got it. We had a very good and safe and effective vaccine. It was the greatest accomplishment of the Trump administration. And it's the one from which he distances himself the most, weirdly. <laughs> Well, if you're his, his advisor going forward, maybe you want to tell him to put that to the top of the list uh, and he may have a chance. Uh, all right, Paul, this past month, The Lancet published an article about the effectiveness of hybrid immunity. Uh, in all cases, I presume, immunity eventually wanes. Does it wane faster in, or slower in certain groups based on based on age, immune status? What happens to immunity? So we have to define what we want from this vaccine or from natural infection. What you want is you want hopefully long-lived protection against serious illness. And by serious illness, I mean protection against hospitalization, intensive care unit admission, or death. That's the goal of this vaccine. That's the goal of really any vaccine, but especially vaccines like this, which are preventing diseases that are a short incubation period mucosal infection. You are not going to prevent mild disease for long. I mean, this virus is going to circulate with us for decades, if not centuries. It's going to continue to cause mild disease in a highly vaccinated population who's also been naturally infected, much as respiratory syncytial virus does and influenza virus does. You're never going to do that. So we created, in many ways, an unrealistic expectation for this vaccine. So the goal is how to protect against serious illness. Now, there was a paper recently by Chen and co-workers out of Harvard that was published in Science Immunology that I think had the best summary of this in terms of longevity and durability of this, this vaccine or natural infection, because both protect. And, and basically, their conclusion was that if you have gotten three doses of, a, um, of an mRNA-containing vaccine or two doses plus a natural infection, that will likely give you the, the, a durable T-cell response that will protect you against serious disease. Because what got lost in this pandemic, one of the many things 
things that got lost in this pandemic was T cells. T cells actually are the unsung hero of this pandemic. I mean, although the the spike protein uh, receptor binding domain will change over time and therefore will become more immune evasive, as was true with Omicron and the Omicron sublineages, there really hasn't been pressure on those T cell epitopes, um, which have been conserved from the original strain, Wuhan 1, up to the current strains like the XBB uh, sublineage of, of Omicron. And so you're still protected against severe disease. I mean, you know, most people, for example, when they got two or three doses of the vaccine and then had to experience an Omicron infection, um, were protected against serious disease because they had adequate T-cell immunity. So that's going to be the question moving forward is who who, in who, who benefits from a booster dose? And, and we'll see. Right. And uh, again, we'll jump to this. I was going to come to it at the end. Last month, April 2023, ASIP, the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, recommended annual booster shots for high-risk populations. Again, they didn't clarify that yet, but again, probably only for high-risk populations, Paul. Yeah, uh, I think they should have never made the original recommendation of a booster for everyone over six months of age. That never made sense. And we were the only country that did that. Canada didn't do it. UK didn't do it. Western Europe didn't do it because it, it was it was opposed to data. I mean, if you look at two doses at the end of December 2021, so you're one year into the vaccine, um, there was a study done by the CDC showing that two doses at that point before you had Omicron continued to protect against serious disease. And it was really for all comorbidities, people over 60, it was working well. Then Omicron hit. And they did studies, CDC did studies looking at, did a third dose matter? Did a fourth dose matter? Um, UK did similar studies. And what they found was, yes, it did matter, but only in high-risk populations, meaning those over, frankly, in this country, those over 75. In the UK, it was those over 80. Um, here, it was, it was one or more comorbidities. In the UK, it was five or more comorbidities. And then also people who uh, who are immune compromised. And you could also uh, put pregnant women into that same category. So focus on them. That's what makes the most sense. And to me, moving forward, what the CDC has to provide us from this point on, knowing that there's, you know, 96 plus percent population immunity at this point, who's getting hospitalized and who's dying? Who are they? I mean, how old are they? What are their comorbidities? Um, Did they recently take an antiviral drug? What vaccines did they get? How recently did they get them? What's the racial and ethnic background? What, what, you know, what, uh, are they immune compromised? Who benefits from a booster dose? Because right now it's unclear and we tend to sort of recommend it for everybody. And, um, or, or, and that's not a good idea. Paul, it's interesting to me, you, you, you keep harping and focusing on severe disease, hospitalizations, especially ICU hospitalizations. And, uh, I agree with that. But what we hear in the press and what we're inundated daily is we're still seeing COVID. We're still seeing COVID. We, we need to distance ourselves, wear masks, et cetera, et cetera. Flatten the curve. Okay. Back in the day, early on, you recall, flatten the curve was that we wanted that so hundreds of patients didn't present every day, mainly to adult ERs, with severe illness that couldn't be managed. We'd run out of ventilators. Then flatten the curve became flatten the number of cases, not severe cases. So I applaud you. And uh, again, why are you one of the few people who really just talk about preventing severe disease with COVID as opposed to realizing it is with us, it's going to be with us every year, and uh, we have better therapies uh, to deal with it, and we ourselves are better protected uh, against it now. Well, I think in part, we're all influenced by our experiences. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with Dr. Stanley Plotkin and Dr. Fred Clark that created the rotavirus vaccine, a- another vaccine to prevent a short-lived incubation period um, mucosal illness. And 
What did our vaccine do? I mean, our vaccine, which is taken up by about 95% of the U.S. population, has basically eliminated hospitalization. So we don't have 75,000 hospitalizations with rotavirus. But that virus still circulates in the community. It still causes mild disease, and it always will. We'll never eliminate that virus. And I think that the, the communications error, and I blame the CDC for this, came in July 4th of 2021, right? So you're six months into a vaccine now. Now, when, when the vaccine was originally um authorized in December of 2020, protection against mild, moderate, and severe disease was 95%. 95%, even for mild disease. Well, the reason it was so good at protecting against mild disease with those original trials is those trials were only three months old. So most of those recipients had just gotten their second dose. So antibody levels remained high. And it's antibodies that are protecting against mild disease. And antibodies are short-lived which is to say virus neutralizing antibodies are short-lived. So six months later, there's a dramatic decline. So, And that's what happened. Six months later, you saw protection against severe illness was still holding up 90 plus, 90 plus percent, but protection of mild disease had dropped to 50%. What happened was there was an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, July 4th, 2021. Thousands of men get together to celebrate the July 4th holiday. Um, 79% are vaccinated. Nonetheless, there's an outbreak of COVID. And of the men who were vaccinated, uh, 346 got COVID. Four were hospitalized. So that's a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. Good. That's a vaccine that's working well. The remaining 342 either had mild or asymptomatic infection. If you read the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which is you know a, a publication of the CDC, of that outbreak, they describe those asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infections as breakthrough infections. Bad word. Breakthrough implies failure. This wasn't a failure. This was a moment to celebrate the success of this vaccine. It was doing what you wanted it to do. In fact, at the same time, um, Brett Kavanaugh, you know, Supreme Court justice, was found to be positive as a part of a routine screening. He was asymptomatic. If you watch the CNN coverage of that time, because I was occasionally on CNN, because uh, I was on during this segment, I remember, they described, you would have thought he was fighting for his life because they kept describing it as a breakthrough illness. Actually, Lindsey Graham got this right. He, he uh, had received two doses of vaccine. He had a mild two-day illness associated with sinusitis. And he said, and I quote, this would have been much worse if I hadn't been vaccinated. Right. Exactly right. See, I'm trying not to make this political. I'm trying to be nice to both sides. But um, that, that, that I think it's the, the we created this expectation that we could prevent transmission or prevent mild disease. And that's not going to happen. And I want to make that case also for a nasal spray vaccine, which people are trying to tout as a way to get past this, where we'll now have much longer lived protection against mild disease, much better protection against transmission. That has certainly not been Flumis story. And I think it's not going to be the story here either. Let's few topics, Paul, have become as polarizing as masks. Are they a panacea or are they worthless? Paul, you're a researcher. To me, it seems like a simple real life clinical or even research question. And Cochrane studied this and published it in January of this past year. Cochrane, for those of you not familiar, is a British nonprofit that specializes in systemic reviews of healthcare interventions. It has a reputation for excellence by many in the medical community. They concluded the following, Paul. It is uncertain from randomized controlled trials whether mask interventions in the community help slow the spread of respiratory illnesses. Paul, social media responded. Headlines, 12 research studies prove masks do not work. Cochrane's editor-in-chief said that social media's response was inaccurate and a misleading interpretation of the Cochrane Library. Dr. Michael Brown, 
Cochran editorial board member, said not enough high-quality randomized trials with high rates of mask adherence were found. Paul, why don't we have better data? It's a simple study. Do masks help? Two big questions. Do masks decrease risk of transmission? And do they decrease the risk of getting infected if you're wearing a mask? Yes, and yes. <laughs> they, they, I think probably the best study is one out of Bangladesh, um, where it looked at sort of masking or not masking, and because it was probably the best controlled study. But it's hard to control these studies. And also remember, there's different masks. I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of the KN95 mask, the real KN95s, not the sort of knockoff ones. Um, the, you know, as compared to, say, the, the rectangular surgical masks. Um, so, so, they're, they're, so, so do, th- the virus is spread by small droplets. Those small droplets are larger than the pore size of the mask. It therefore makes sense that if you cover your nose and mouth, which is the route by which these small droplets enter your body, that you're going to decrease the risk of either getting infected or transmitting the infection. Um, but, you know, but how you wear those masks, when you wear those masks, um, knowing that it's not 100%, Certainly. So you'll decrease, uh, I think, transmission. You'll decrease uh, spread. You'll decrease your chance of getting or giving the virus. But it's not perfect. You know, probably the best summary of this, because this is a, a sort of a big topic. There's a, um, a, a a person who puts out a subsec, which I think is free, but maybe not. But it, it's it's uh, her name is Caitlin Jedalisi, and she calls herself your local epidemiologist. And she has a sort of extensive review of the, the this masking story that I think is probably the best review. But but do masks worse? Of course they do. I mean, this is not a novel concept. I mean, when you walk into the into a patient's room who has a respiratory virus, you wear a mask for a reason to protect yourself. I mean, when I walked, you know, when I was taking care of COVID patients at the end of December, you know, waiting for that fact for me to be able to get into the front of the line to get a vaccine, um, I sure wore, wore an N95 mask that protected me. And I was confident it would protect me. I think it did protect me. Paul, many hospitals today are mandating less to wear masks in the hospital. Personal question. Paul, I work in the CHOP emergency department. We know the prevalence of COVID is way, way down. Should I wear a mask when I interact with all patients or just those with potential respiratory illnesses? Well, so I, th- I think COVID or SARS-CoV-2 will, will settle into the uh, pantheon of winter respiratory viruses. So like influenza, like respiratory, syncytial virus, like parainfluenza virus, all of those viruses can cause hospitalization. All of those viruses can cause death. Uh, we sort of grandfathered them in. I mean, two years before there was a, uh, a SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, there was there were 800,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths in this country from influenza. Could we have dramatically reduced that if we sort of masked and social distanced and tested and make sure that anybody who was positive, you know, stayed home for five days and or if they had to come to work, that at least they wore a mask or distance as much as they could? Sure, we could do that. And, and frankly, there are Asian countries that do wear masks over, over the winter. We don't do that. It's just not our DNA. But it'll be curious to see what will be the lessons from all this. I have friends, for example, who say to me, you know, my child has respiratory symptoms congestion, cough, runny nose, fever, you know, and uh, and I've tested them and they're COVID negative. So now I feel comfortable sending them to school. I mean, so sending them with flu or RSV or these other viruses that can kill people. So I, I, I we'll see how this all plays out. Oh, there, there's By the way, RSV vaccines are right around the corner. We our, our committee, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, just met on May 18th to talk about a maternal RSV vaccine. So there's a virus that, you know, that kills probably 100 to 300 babies every year that causes 80,000 children, less than five to be admitted every year. I mean, should we take that virus seriously? If we're infected, of course we should. But we, we tend to grandfather those in. And I think what's going to happen with COVID is we'll grandfather that in. 
Paul Frontiers in Cardiovascular Medicine last year, August, published a study in adults. They concluded that the risk of myocarditis is more than seven times higher in people who were infected with COVID than in those who received the vaccine. This past December, JAMA Pediatrics looked at a systemic review of 23 observational studies looking at myopericarditis after the COVID vaccine. 854 cases, no deaths, inotropes were used in 1.3% of those children. August last year, the journal Vaccines, again, looked at myopericarditis in children, occurred after the vaccine in, you ready for this, 0.0022%, highest in males, highest rate after the second vaccine. Give us the 10,000-foot view, myocarditis in general following COVID and also following the vaccine. Well, it occurs after both. It occurs more frequently after the natural infection, and it occurs more severely after the natural infection, especially in, in, in uh, children who have, you know, that sort of late onset sequelae, the, you know, the, uh, this uh, MIS-C, you know, this multi-system inflammatory disease. There, you see myocarditis 50 to 70 percent of cases and occasionally requiring uh, intensive care unit. It, when we reviewed the data and continue to review the data in children, um, what you see is that the greatest risk was for the 16 to 17 year old male, where it was about one in 6,600. Overall, it's about one in 50,000. If you look at the five to 13 year old, it's more like one in 500,000. I mean, it's, 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 you know, you're more likely to be struck by lightning. So it does occur. Um, it, it reminds me, this is true of many vaccines. I mean, so for measles, for example, natural measles virus can cause thrombocytopenia lowering of the platelet count in about one per 400 people who have measles. The measles vaccine also can do that, a live attenuated vaccine in about one in 25,000 people. So, you know, it's not surprising that something that the natural infection causes is something that the vaccine could also cause. But when that's historically been true, it's always much less common and much less severe. Can the chickenpox vaccine live latently in your nervous system and reactivate? Yes. But when it does, it occurs less, much less frequently than after natural infection and much less severely. So yeah, both are true. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of this uh, data manipulation has, has uh, scared people, especially the uh, Surgeon General in Florida has misrepresented these kinds of data and just confused people. It's easy to confuse people. All right, Paul, speaking of confusion and sort of head scratching, long COVID. CDC says that up to 20% of adults who have survived COVID have what we consider long COVID. If you are hospitalized with COVID, greater chance that you will have long COVID. Long COVID is now recognized as a disability under the Americans with Disability Act. How do we define long COVID? Anyone experiencing any symptoms from an acute COVID infection that persists beyond three months. Highly diverse clinical presentation. Brookings Institute report, Paul, up to 4 million working age Americans are currently unable to work due to the severity of their long COVID. 80% of patients with long COVID report limitations to their day-to-day activities. Fortunately, in our world, uh, Paul, pediatrics, long COVID, an incidence maybe four or so percent. What is your take home on long COVID? Well, I think you put your finger on it. It needs to be clearly defined. Uh, I think it is probably more than one thing. 
I think there. So, for example, if you look, um, there are a number of viruses which can cause long-term symptoms. Influenza can cause long-term symptoms. Mono can cause long-term symptoms. Hepatitis B infections can cause long-term symptoms. So, so are we talking about um, just the, the 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 delayed resolution of of the the initial infection because the say blood clots have small blood clots have been formed in vessels, or because we have a dysregulated or uh, hyperactive uh, immune system, which data from sort of Icon School of Medicine shows. Or because the virus is persistently replicating, which I, I think is probably less likely. But all of those would sort of require different treatments, and all of those are maybe overlapping. They're not necessarily distinct. So we need to define the pathogenesis of long COVID, and then we can better sort of address how to treat it. But what is it? I, I mean, is, is it four weeks later, eight weeks later, 12 weeks later? I, I think what you can say to make people feel a little better about this or to get some control over this is you're much less likely to get it if you've been vaccinated. Um, and you are also much less likely to get it if you're, say, in a high-risk group and you take an antiviral early in illness. So so um, I, I do think this this is a um, this is an unusual virus. It, 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 does, it causes you to uh, react to your own blood vessels. And because every organ system has a blood supply, I mean, every organ system is at risk. Miss C was a surprise for me. Here you had children who, you say, 5 to 13 years of age, sort of peak was around 9 years of age, who had a trivial illness, have, just happened to pick up serendipitously because a friend or family member was sick, who were completely fine, running, playing, and then a month later had high fever and then evidence of you know kidney involvement, heart involvement, liver involvement, sometimes lung involvement. Um, they're in the hospital, they're in the ICU. I mean, that's that's a lot of what we saw early on was this Miss C. And that's this post-infectious inflammatory syndrome. That, that this virus does that many other viruses don't do. So uh, take this virus seriously. I take long COVID seriously. I think we need to learn about it much more than we know now. And we will. I think we'll learn about it over time. And the good news also is that Omicron variants are less likely to have caused this than, say, the Delta or Alpha variants. Just an emphasis, Paul, on treatment. The kids that I saw, and obviously Chopso with Miss C, I mean, they came in pretty sick, hypotensive, in the unit on pressors. Paul, I looked at their charts three or four days later, weaned off pressors, cardiac function back to normal and home. So it's dramatic that it, it impacted them so severely to require ICU admission, yet three, four, five days later, they were home with good cardiac function. Right. Weird virus. All right, Paul. British Medical Journal uh, in March of this year uh, published an article about, you ready? School closures and in-school mitigation, i.e. wearing masks. They concluded that school closures were associated with reduced COVID transmission, decreased morbidity and mortality in the community from COVID, yet associated with reduced learning, and this reduced learning was worse in lower socioeconomic classes, increased anxiety, increased depression, increased obesity. They concluded that the certainty of evidence was low body of evidence was weak as a whole. As we know, not only in the United States, but worldwide, 95% of the world's student population was affected by school closures. The U.S. National Assessment for Education Progress Tests, also known as the Nation's Report Card, noted that testing showed significant setbacks in math and reading, and the drops were most sharply among minority children. The National Assessment for Education program leaders say that they cannot endorse that school closures led to the declines in scores. A lot of information, Paul. Give me your take. School closures, good or bad? Did we close them for too long? Talking about long COVID, 
what are going to be the long-term ramifications of these young children, especially, and maybe even those children in lower socioeconomic classes for having been out of school or hybrid school for a year, two years plus? It's interesting that early in the pandemic, the American Academy of Pediatrics didn't uh, want school closures, nor did the Trump administration. I think what happened is, um, you know, the the teachers um, felt that that was important. And so ultimately, these schools were closed. Um, Is this an example where the treatment was worse than the the disease? Um, I think it might have been. I certainly think that it is likely that because these schools were closed, that children suffered in terms of socialization, in terms of education. I think that makes sense, and I think that's likely. I think if we go back in time, could go back in time, um, I think that although we may have closed schools initially, I think we probably should have opened them far earlier. And there were, you know, there were other countries that didn't close schools. I mean, children are certainly the least likely to be hospitalized and the least likely, about thousandfold less likely than, say, someone over 65 years of age. So, that, so, and so, part of the argument there, well, you know, children live in multi generational homes and they're going to transmit. This, it was hard to stop transmission of this virus; it spread asymptomatically. So, I'm not sure that did anything, but I. I guess I think we did um, overcall school closures and wish we hadn't done it as vigorously as we did. I do think children really suffered that. Paul, uh, I just want to say my mom and my daughter are both teachers. You sort of said teachers wanted that. Uh, there's some, been some recent evidence uh, talking about national teachers unions collaboration with the CDC. So I'm not sure it's all teachers or maybe the teachers leaders. But again, we don't need to get political. I think we could talk for an hour or so on that. Please don't email me. I I get enough hate mail as it is, but that wasn't my (laughs) sense of it. Okay. 2023 CDC COVID data tracker. Paul, children between the ages of 12 and 17, 72% have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Five to 11-year-olds, 40% have received at least one dose. Two to four-year-olds, 10%. Those children under the age of two, 8%. You already spoke, and we all are well aware, severe illness has been less of an issue in children. As you said before, 2022 CDC data shows that the seroprevalence of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies in children, 96.3%. Let's go back to 1855, Massachusetts, first state to require children to get a vaccine. This was the smallpox vaccine, which saved millions of lives. In October of 2022, CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted unanimously to add COVID vaccine to the recommended pediatric immunization schedule. Most healthcare providers follow ASEP recommendations for their patients, yet this does not constitute a vaccine mandate. And if we learned anything from COVID over the last few years, Paul, state government has a lot of power and they determine school immunization requirements for their jurisdictions. Well, let's look at the states. 50 states in District of Columbia. District of Columbia has a student vaccine mandate. 29 states, which include Pennsylvania and New Jersey, have no mandate. And 21 states have laws that ban a student vaccine mandate. You touched upon a lot of issues, Paul. We talked about the past of COVID, what went right, what went wrong. Do we need a student vaccine mandate going forward? No. I think what we, uh, children, as you know, are an under-vaccinated group. Can children suffer severe disease? Yes. There have been about 1,700 deaths in children. 
Um, can they be hospitalized? Of course they have. We all have experienced this. Um, but there is a high level of population immunity. I think that that I'm a new grandfather. Um, my my uh, my new little grandbaby, she's three months old. When she becomes six months old, will I sort of hope that uh, that my daughter-in-law and son get her vaccinated? Yes, because that will be her first exposure to, to that virus, or in this case, one protein of the virus. I mean, I think it is likely that this virus is going to circulate for decades. It is likely that people are going to eventually be infected. Do you want them to be infected without ever having been vaccinated? No. So I think that, that that's a group that should be vaccinated. I think when you have a school vaccine mandate, now you're talking about, you know, people who are what, five, six, seven years of age, babies or children who are that age, many of whom likely have already been naturally infected. And can natural infection protect against severe disease? Yes. In, in many ways, you could argue you're better off being naturally infected, assuming you live, because you now have an immune response against all four viral proteins, and as well as a broader T-cell response. So um, I, I think it's hard to mandate a vaccine for someone who's been naturally infected. And so what we need is information. I, who, it's certainly clear from there was a study in Kentucky showing if you've been naturally infected and then, then given one or two doses of vaccine, you boosted immunity. But the critical question is not boosting antibody immunity. Of course, you're going to boost antibody-induced immunity. How long does, does, does your memory B and T cells last? For how long based on whether you've been naturally infected or vaccinated or both? And again, academic immunologists can give us that, that answer. I mean, I got three doses of vaccine and one natural infection. I didn't get a booster dose. I felt I have a high level of protection against serious illness. And, and until the CDC or academic immunologists can show me that I am at risk for serious disease despite that experience, I'm not going to get a booster. All right, Paul, I want to get a little personal here. Uh, again, we remember years ago, we used to have chicken pox parties before, before we had the vaccine. Kid had chicken pox down the block. You brought your child who didn't have chicken pox down the block. You wanted them to get chicken pox so that they were, quote, protected. Let's talk about, I have two grandchildren, okay? 19 months and one month. Uh, congratulations on your first grandchild. Why? Uh, tell again, a lot of our listeners are practitioners. So obviously we're following recommendations of, of, you know, societies and bodies, CDC, et cetera. But tell me or tell our audience why that you hope that your child has your grandchild get immunized. Uh, like I said, when they become available, uh, when your grandchild becomes six months of age, sort of emphasize that based on the fact that disease in children Again, not that severe. You feel that one vaccine or even two vaccines are going to prevent the rare, rare chance of severe disease in your grandchild? Yeah. I mean, when we had chickenpox parties, it was before there was a chickenpox vaccine. Before that, the thinking was you're much better off getting chickenpox as a child because you have a tenfold lesser risk of having pneumonia or severe diseases. So that made some sense. But once there was a chickenpox vaccine, the disease, the, the, the answer was easy. Now you can get immunity without having to pay the price of natural infection. The same thing's true here. I think that the vaccine is far safer than the natural infection. I really wish we would or I wouldn't use the word natural. In fact, I mean, maybe uh, disease-induced protection or, or survivor protection, because, you know, I don't know, Mother Nature must have a very good public relations team because Mother Nature has been trying to kill us ever since we crawled out of the ocean with the land. There's nothing natural about uh, COVID, you know, or polio or malaria or the other sort of natural things out there. So, um, I, you know, you're much better off getting vaccine-induced immunity than, than infection-induced immunity because you don't have to pay the price. Now, you, you can, um, I think with, with this, this, this paper that shows sort of three doses of an mRNA-containing vaccine or two doses of a natural infection to give sort of longer-lived, durable and 
protection. I think that makes sense. So I think if you're a, a young, you have, you're the parent of a young child and you that, that child has not experienced a natural infection yet, I think it makes a lot of sense to give a vaccine. Even if they've experienced a natural infection, you could argue the two doses may boost those sort of memory responses. Um, and hopefully the, we'll get data on this. Great. Uh, Paul, as we conclude, I'm going to put you in the role of a teacher. Uh, you're going to give out grades. Okay. What grade would you give Dr. Anthony Fauci and why? I give him an A minus. I think he's done a great job at, at doing a very difficult thing, which is to try and communicate the science of this vaccine. I think he's had a very narrow line to walk because like it or not, as head of NIID, it is a political job. I mean, here's a man who's brilliant, who survived seven different administrations. You don't do that without having some level of political savvy. So um, I think for the most part, he's, he's done a great job at translating science for the public. A minus. There were a couple of things I wish he'd done a little differently. Uh, I wish he hadn't promoted this bivalent vaccine as clearly being better than the monovalent vaccine when it wasn't. Um, it boosters boost, and it did boost, but it was no better than what we already had. And so um, there were some things where I felt um, he could have done a little better, but that's true of all of us. I mean, you learn as you go. And that's, that's the hardest part of all this. I mean, he was trying to communicate initially, you know, in like in early 2020, when we had very little information about this virus or, or, or eventually the vaccine. And so you're making your best guess. So you you have to be wrong. Anybody who has commented on this vi- this vaccine or this virus early in this pandemic has been wrong at some point, including me. So you know, and, and I think that's probably one thing we can do a better job of is explaining to people that that this is the best information we have now. And sometimes that changes as more information becomes available. I think that's an excellent point, Paul. People rely on scientists, rely on doctors, and we usually are not wishy-washy. But like you said, new disease, new vaccine, science changes, and uh, it, it's probably a sign of weakness for a leader, whether it's Dr. Tony Fauci or an attending in the ER or an attending infectious disease to sort of be wishy-washy with their recommendations, even though early on we didn't have as much information as we have today. Paul, two last questions and then we'll conclude. Uh, You've written many books. Any current books that you're working on? Yes. No, starting in in this pandemic, because I was on the um, NIH active group, which was appointed by Francis Collins to um, try and formulate how we were going to make these vaccines. And now I've been on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee since 2017 and will be till 2025. So I've sort of had a front row seat in this. So I wrote a book about this this pandemic, which is um, the subtitle is uh, Deciphering COVID Myths and Controversies in a Post-Pandemic World. And the title is Tell Me When It's Over. It'll be published early next year. Um, So just to sort of go through sort of where we were, where we are, where we're heading with this virus. But but probably the most important thing is to have a realistic expectation of where we're going with this. And I I still don't think we have it. I think if you ask 100 Americans, what does it mean to be fully protected? I think you'll get 100 different answers. All right, Paul, I'll pencil you in for 2024 for another appearance on the podcast when the book comes out. And of course, I save the best question for last, Paul. You are a big Philadelphia Eagles fan. Uh, They just signed quarterback Jalen Hurts to a huge contract. Will he lead the Eagles back to the Super Bowl? And will we win this time? (laughs) So I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. So that's my conflict of interest. I'm unable or incapable of, of analyzing this team fairly. Yes, I think he will. Although, interestingly, he recently graduated um, from the University of Oklahoma with a master's in like human relations. I don't know if you saw that. He was on stage yes, getting yes. it. He will be the highest paid graduate next year of any of those, uh, everybody else in that graduate program. 
that puts NIL into perspective. Thank you, Paul, for your time uh, and expertise uh, on a Monday morning quarterback look back of COVID. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.